So with that, brothers and sisters, we can turn to Acts chapter 27, where we are simply continuing on in our journey through this book. Uh, But as we turn there, I want to encourage you to maybe put a finger in Acts 27 and then find also Romans chapter 15, which, and hold on to that, we'll read Romans 15 first, actually. Uh, But over the past several weeks of Mark's sabbatical, uh, we've been working our way through this book, through Acts, and we might think of this as the major final section of the book, the final chapter. uh, not 20, Acts 27, but the final chapter of the whole book, if you were to think of it in different chapters, other than the chapters that it's numbered with, of course. And so it's sort of the climactic conclusion to what we've just read over the last several weeks of Paul being imprisoned in the region of Judea. Now he's finally made it through that sort of uh, runaround process of going through the different courts uh, throughout Judea, and now he's on his way to Rome. And so as uh, Portius, the, the governor of Judea, had said, to Caesar you appealed, Paul, and now to Caesar you shall go. And so that's exactly what now we read here in Acts 27 the beginning of Paul setting sail to go to Rome. And so, as with any journey, there's a good bit of excitement that the book starts out with, but eventually it gets a little bit difficult. It gets a little bit hard, as we'll see. And we'll pause this week before we get to the famous shipwreck part of the story, which we'll get to next week with Pastor Mark's first sermon back for the evening service. And so, I do want to say also that this is going to be a little bit of a different service, a sermon. Uh, it's not going to be a normal sermon from me. We're going to actually going to watch some videos uh, because as we'll see as we get into the text, uh, this is a very much a travel log, a story of Paul's travels from one place to another. And with the benefit of modern technology, we can now see that. So it's better than me telling you about all these places and what this voyage would have looked like. It's better for us to see it. Uh, but before we do, we can think about Paul's heart. Think about Paul and what he, his aims were. This whole trip to Rome was not happenstance. It was not a coincidence. He was very much planning and he felt called by God to go to Rome. And not, not just to Rome, but hopefully to the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire, which would have been represented at the time by a place like Spain. And so I'll turn your attention to Romans 15. We'll start in verse 23. And we'll just read down to verse 28. So we'll see Paul's intent. And he writes this passage, by the way, before going to Jerusalem, as he's on his way to Jerusalem, where now he is departing, he's leaving. So this was a few years prior to where we'll read tonight in Acts 27. So we read this in Romans 15, verse 23 and following. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, the regions of Asia Minor, And since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Now, he says, I want to see you in passing, you Roman Christians. I want to go to you in Rome before I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So that was one of Paul's reasons for going to Jerusalem in the first place, was to bring that contribution from Gentile Christians to Jewish Christians to sort of bridge that gap between those two people groups. 
So verse 27, for they were pleased to do it. They were pleased to give that contribution and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in their material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. So Paul didn't know exactly how he was going to get to Spain, but he knew he was going to hopefully get to Rome one way or another. And so this is an interesting passage for us for several reasons, but what sticks out the most, I think, for us is that Paul's heart is very much intent on spreading the gospel where it's never been taken before. By hook or by crook, Paul was going to get his way to uh, those places. He wanted to go as far as he could to explain and teach and proclaim the gospel of Christ. And so, as we turn our attention now to Acts 27, let's pray, and then we will dive in. Our Father, now as we turn to your word, we ask for your illumination, that we would understand it, so that we may see the early history of our church, the church of God. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would not only help us to understand it, but to take up Uh, the torch in our own generation, and to carry forth the same gospel proclamation to the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So hear now the word of the living God from Acts 27, verses 1 through 26. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of... A ship of Adramidium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coasts of, or coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus, because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty at Snidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives." But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and, and northwest and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, called the Northeaster, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, 
We managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run around, run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I love to travel. I mentioned it in this morning's sermon. I love to travel and to see the world. It's one of my favorite things. And I love to, to see not only new things, but I actually also really enjoy the planning process of travel. As Bailey and I were planning our trip for England, I spent months leading up to it, basically all of my spare time trying to figure out, A, what we wanted to do, how we were going to do it, and what the timeline would be so as to maximize our entire experience. I loved looking at maps and sort of following along with where we were going to be going and trying to map out what would be the best and most efficient way to get from point A to point B. But if there's one thing I've learned over the years, it's simply that YouTube is a really good tool to use when you want to travel, when you want to see things. And so as I was planning our trip, I would spend a lot of time on YouTube trying to see what that would look like to go to a all these different uh, attractions or um, historical sites or things like that. And so as I was reading through this passage, and I've been reading reading it for several weeks now, sort of highly anticipating this, I decided eventually along the way that I just really should show you guys some videos uh, to see what we've just read, to sort of be there and see it. We live in the 21st century. We have this great opportunity to use technology to see and visualize uh, what the world looks like over in Greece. And so Paul, as you can see on this map, makes a very long journey from the first red dot over on the right all the way across to the left I guess I should say the left was over here for you guys, uh, to Malta, which is where we'll pick up next week uh, with the famous shipwreck event. And so we'll watch these two videos. The first video is from an Australian Paul scholar. So his, his whole life has been spent studying Paul. And so he's got a cool Australian accent as well. And so he'll sort of show us what this looks like. And then another one gives us, I think, even better visuals. So it's about 15 minutes of video. And then afterwards, I'll sort of drive home some simple lessons from the text, uh, from what we can learn from here in Acts 27. So with that, let's watch these videos.
This would be Paul's last voyage, and he probably knew it. As I thought about what lay ahead for Paul, this soldier of the cross, a reverence filled my spirit. And I suspected that retracing his final journey from Jerusalem to his last breath in Rome would add to the gravity and respect I was already feeling. For two years, the Apostle Paul had been imprisoned at Caesarea on the coast of Israel awaiting trial. Jewish leaders had accused him of capital crimes against the Roman Empire. Finally, at his hearing, Paul exercised his right as a Roman citizen and appealed his case to the emperor. Paul had often desired to go to Rome. Now he would go, but as a prisoner. I'm in pursuit of Paul the Apostle. My name is Con Campbell. I've studied Paul's 13 New Testament letters for years. Now I want to know him better. For the first time, I'm following his journeys from Jerusalem across the Mediterranean all the way to Rome where he was martyred. Following the route from Caesarea, Israel, I approached the southern coast of what is Turkey today by boat, just as Paul had done 2,000 years ago. The Gospel writer Luke sailed with Paul. Luke would record their adventurous voyage in the book of Acts. At the coastline, I rendezvoused again with professor, guide, and author, Dr. Mark Fairchild. We drove a little farther inland toward the ancient port of Myra. Well, when, when Paul writes to Titus, he says, as I left you in Crete, we'll scratch your heads. You know, Acts doesn't mention anything about Crete. Luke doesn't give us as much information as we would hope he would. Though he does give us an awful lot, so we shouldn't be too hard on it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. The harbor at Miro was no longer accessible from the coastline. Time had changed the entrance. The port of Miro was important for shipping grain. And from here, Paul's voyage would turn dramatic. A replica of a first century boat sat along the dock in front of the ancient granary. Now, this doesn't look much like a harbor anymore. What, what's happened to this spot here? What happens is coastlines constantly change because of water. Rivers dump alluvial soil into the harbors. They silt up, and it has become a marsh. So what is over here to our left is what remains of the ancient harbor. This would have been the area where the vessels would have come. So we need to imagine water coming up to this point uh, and big enough body of water, deep enough for a large cargo ship to pull in. And the Apostle Paul stopped here on his way to Rome. Mark, why did he stop here, do you think? In the past, they did not have passenger liners as we have today. Mm -hmm. They're all cargo ships. Uh -huh. And what would happen is they would go to the harbor to try and line up a, uh, a cargo ship, uh -huh. and probably uh, a grain cargo ship that was heading in the right direction. And some of these cargo ships could be 300 feet in length. Oh, so wow. we're not talking about puny little ships. We're talking about large ships. So, yeah. And you need ocean-going or sea-going craft Mm -hmm. um, to weather the storms and the, the waves mm -hmm. and the things that you're going to experience as you go out into the Mediterranean. Right, okay. So we, we need to imagine a large cargo ship to pull in, Paul to get on and take off to Rome. Yes, okay. That's the, uh, the picture. 
The green ship had intended to reach Rome before the fall storms, but we know that would not be the case. I climbed on board again with Professor Linford Stutzman, who's led study tours called Sailing Acts since 2004. What sort of impact do you think following Paul around on your boat, what impact has that had on your life? My wife and I say to each other sometimes, it's changed our lives. It's one thing to to admire Paul from the stories in Acts, but to actually experience and and kind of feel the challenges and the commitment, the level of commitment it took to do these journeys and to do a lot of other things besides travel. My admiration of Paul has gone way up. I find it fascinating that he has been shipwrecked four times, probably. Really? Uh, why, because, why, why four? Because he, when he writes that he'd been shipwrecked three times, it was before the last oh, time. Right. So probably. Good point. Um, Good point. But the, the shipwreck story in Acts 27 is the best account of a first century shipwreck in existence is right? in the Mediterranean. Yeah. So so historians and archaeologists often refer to Acts 27 because of its accuracy of, and details of what had happened. Not only does it describe the wind, the weather, the place, but the tension on board among the people who are desperate. And so so that, that story is, is one of my favorites to understand the dynamics of sailing under the worst conditions. We didn't try to sail the entire route of this. Had they missed this island, they would have been driven even farther west toward the north coast of Africa. According to the Book of Acts, it was early morning first light when they finally sighted land and ran aground. So I decided to go out early too, in the area of St. Paul's Bay, where many believe the shipwreck occurred. But before reaching Malta, a drama played out that would terrify both the soldiers and the sailors. After changing vessels in Myra, they sailed to the Greek island of Crete, and they had the option of spending the winter there, but the crew decided they would push on on their way to Rome, against Paul's advice, actually. And they were caught in a horrible hurricane. For the next 14 days, they were out of control, being pushed east in a kind of zigzag across the Mediterranean. They were not able to see the sun for this time. They couldn't see the stars. It was a horrible experience. But Paul was able to offer comfort to the crew because He said that in a vision, an angel had appeared to him, telling him that he must appear before Caesar and give an account of Christ. And in fact, all 276 on board the vessel would be spared. In spite of Paul's words, they feared for their lives. Acts chapter 27 describes the shipwreck. When the fourteenth night came, we were drifting in the Adriatic Sea, and in the middle of the night, the sailors thought they were approaching land. Fearing we might run aground in some rocky place, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight to come. When daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but sighted a bay with a beach. They planned to run the ship ashore if they could, 
After casting off the anchors, they left them in the sea. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and headed for the beach. But they struck a sandbar and ran the ship aground. The bow jammed fast and remained immovable, while the stern began to break up by the pounding of the waves. I tried to imagine the strength needed to swim ashore in rough water after sleepless days and having eaten very little. And we need to remember that Luke survived with Paul. I assume Luke, the historian, was somehow able to keep his parchments dry. And, fortunately, he was something like a physician who could care for the sick and injured. After the shipwreck, all 276 passengers Paul appealed to be heard by Caesar, they needed to make the long journey by boat across the Mediterranean Sea from Caesarea in Israel across to Rome. A centurion named Julius was put in charge of him, but he did not travel this passage alone. Two of his friends, Luke and Aristarchus, willingly went with him to provide him with support and companionship. Paul's journeys as a free man were now over, and he would never see his home again. They traveled and stopped in Sidon for a while. Then they traveled by Cyprus and went to a city called Myra, where they boarded a larger Alexandrian ship and headed on their journey. They then sailed by Crete for some protection, but the seas were rough and it was slow going. They docked for a while in a port called Fair Haven near the city of Lycia, and Paul advised them to stay there, otherwise the voyage would be a disaster for them, their cargo and the ship. The centurion though listened to a majority of them who wanted to leave for a more favorable port, but as they left, the winds blew them southward. They were now at the mercy of the large waves and the strong winds and they were unable to get their bearings for over a week as the sun and the stars were not visible for them to fix their positions. In the midst of this storm though, Paul assured them that they would all arrive in Rome safely and after 14 days of relentlessly fighting the elements, he encouraged them to eat some food for their nourishment. The next day they saw land and headed towards it, but the ship ran aground. Roman law stated that if a ship ran aground, the prisoners could be killed. For if a prisoner escaped on his way to shore, the person who was assigned to look after them would pay with their life. The centurion, however, wanted to save Paul. And for the second time in Paul's life as a prisoner, his influence ensured that the other prisoners did not escape even though they had opportunity to do so. Those who could swim jumped overboard and swam to shore, while those who couldn't grabbed pieces of wood, and finally, everyone made it safely to shore here in Malta. 
It is believed that this small island, with a statue of Paul just behind me, located about 80 meters from the coast of the main island, is where they first set foot when they landed. The natives of the island made a fire to warm the wet men. And Paul gathered some branches to add to the fire, and as he did so, a viper fastened onto his arm. Everyone was expecting him to die, but he shook it off as if nothing had happened, further impressing in the minds of those watching that this was no ordinary man. God was watching over him. God had a special work for him to do in Rome, and it wasn't his destiny to die on this small island. Paul and the rest of those on the ship spent three months here on Malta. According to tradition, Paul spent this time in a cave, today known as St. Paul's Grotto, now the site of a church here in Rabat. Wherever Paul was, he was a true missionary and he made a difference in the lives of the people that he met. One of the leading citizens of the island was a man named Publius and he had a father who was sick with a fever and Paul prayed for and healed this man. The Cathedral of Amdina is built on the spot where it's believed the house of Publius stood. The miraculous journey of Paul and the safe passage of everyone on the ship, not just here to Malta, but onward to Rome, shows the power of God. But the part about the story I like the most is how the love of God was manifested through the lives of Paul's companions. Luke and Aristarchus endured a miserable time at sea, hunger and shipwreck, just so they could be close to Paul during this trying time in his life. May we support our friends, family and colleagues when they go through tough times, especially when that means sacrificing some comforts ourselves. So I, I hope these videos, uh, sort of as, as inspiring as that one is with the music and everything, I hope that they help you to see what this will look like, and not only to see what the land looks like and the, the sea, but to really feel uh, the weight of the anxiety that they would have felt as they sort of lose their bearings and are lost at sea, adrift, fearing for the worst, not knowing what was going to come of them. And so it's it's amazing that we have the ability to do this, and so I hope that you are okay with me playing a video in church uh, instead of just giving a normal sermon. Uh, but before we do head home, I, I do want to sort of walk through this then and sort of process through this uh, briefly just by giving a few quick lessons, three lessons that we can take from this. So the first one comes, I think, actually in the first video where he's on the boat with uh, the guy who runs the boat tours. And that guy points out rightly that Luke's story is actually very accurate to uh, nautical uh, history. And so historians have gone back and looked at this, and they have even naval historians have gone back and tried to look at, at Luke's story, and they've actually seen that this is all incredibly accurate. Now, to us, that may not be a big deal. Of course, we, we say that the Scriptures are inspired by God, and therefore they are true and right, and of course they're going to be accurate. But it's interesting to consider that Luke, as a physician, not as a 
not as a, a Navy a maritime person. He was not someone who had a whole lot of experience out on boats, especially out on the Mediterranean. It's interesting that he gets everything so interesting, interestingly correct. He notes the winds that are there. He notes the, the leaves that they travel through and the places that they uh, had passed by along their way. Uh, he knows also of the the location of Sirtis. Uh, Sirtis are the, is the sort of shallow parts of the sea off the northern coast of Libya, uh, where sailors in the ancient world were terrified of this place. They actually would tell mythic stories about the sea creatures that resided there because bad things would happen if you were blown off course into the Sirtis, which are the, the shoal, sort of the, the very shallow part of the ocean where it was known for for ships to get wrecked and to crash and for people to lose their lives. So he notes all of these things, and all of it, I think, just goes to show that Luke was really there. Luke and Paul and Aristarchus and others were there, and they lived through this experience themselves. And so it also mentions, uh, interestingly, the date of the fast. Uh, and so the, the date of the fast is important because that was the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, we see that in verse 9, uh, the mention of it there. And so what this means is that it happened in the fall. One of the videos, I forget which one, mentions that detail, but it happened in the fall. Typically, in, this, in the ancient world, you would not sail after about October. October to April was really difficult. If you're going to sail, you are going to be very much risking your life. Uh, you would you would often get paid a bit more, however. And so actually going to Rome, the, one of the reasons that they uh, maybe felt so pressured to get there quickly when they were in Crete, the, the large island of Crete, where they had stopped at one harbor, but they wanted to go a little bit further to another harbor, a harbor that was southwest and northwest, meaning it was a cove. It, it protected their ship from the wind. It would be better for them to park the ship there for the winter. They say, no, let's not go uh, let's not be okay with just going here. Let's get to there. They, they can, you can sense the pressure that they felt to keep moving the journey along. Now, this is all very historically accurate because in the ancient period, Rome would actually pay you a lot of extra money if you got to got to Rome uh, in the wintertime. And so if you didn't wait it out and come in the spring, uh, you'd be paid more. And riots would actually were known to break out in the city of Rome. People would start uprisings because there wasn't enough grain. And so they would pay extra to sailors and ships that were willing to, to weather the storms and to weather this difficult time. And so Paul says, no, let's pause, which you can think as a prisoner, uh, they would have, A, not really listened to his uh, advice, but B, they would think, of course, you're a prisoner, Paul. You want to slow down. You want to bide your time. We're going to keep moving along. And so they do that much to their own peril, as we see. So that's the first lesson. That there's a lot of theological or historical accuracy taking place. But the next point is a theological point, and it seems to be the point of the whole passage, and it's a point that our brother Michael mentioned early. God is sovereign and takes us where he wants to. And so he watches over us in the middle of everything. Paul was hoping to make it to Rome. As we read earlier, he was dead set on it. He feels like he's being called there by God. And now we get confirmation of this as Paul stands up and he declares to them in the midst of the storm, don't worry, 
don't fear. I've been told by an angel that we will make it to Rome. And that's exactly what happened. So through thick and thin, through the waves and the sea and the, and the terrors that they faced, Paul was going to make it there one way or another. They'd been completely blown out to sea. They'd lost their coordinates, but they trusted in the Lord. They trusted in this comforting message from Paul, though it would have been difficult to do so. So the simple point is that God is with us. If he calls us to something, he will get us there. We will, we will make it to where he is calling us. He watches over us and he makes sure we get where he wants us to be. Third simple point, our opportunities to serve. We could say this, that God uses difficult situations for his strategic purposes. He uses these moments like this for his, uh, for his plan, his purpose. Uh, all of this is clear when we consider really the ancient context of all of this. People in, in the ancient world would have understood w- waves and wind and sea as being controlled by different powerful deities like Poseidon and others that uh, sort of lay behind these powers. And so uh, often before a voyage would take place, sailors and those who were about to make the journey would consult uh, their gods or goddesses. They would go to temples and they would try to seek whether or not the gods were saying it was a good time or a bad time. They would listen to these omens. And so in a situation like this here in Acts 27, people would have been thinking the gods are against us. The gods hate us. I must have done something wrong. And this is why Long, long before the story of Jonah, the same sort of thing happens as he's cast out at sea and a storm is now taking place. They begin to think, what have we done? And Jonah is the one who says, it's my fault. It's my fault. And so it's interesting then that ever since the opening pages of the New Testament, this fear of the sea, which was very much common for Jews in this time period and throughout the Old Testament. They feared the sea. The sea meant chaos and disorder. It's interesting then that in the New Testament, we see God's control over the sea, God's control over the chaos and the disorder of the the sea. And so we see this, of course, with Jesus, who stands and calms the storms. But now we see this with Paul, who doesn't have the power to calm the storm, but he does know what is going to come of it, and that he was going to have an opportunity to bring the orderliness and the peace of the gospel even in the midst of this calm storm. And so for his fellow seafaring companions, all of this for them would have been a, a perfect opportunity to hear this message of this man from named Paul who had this message from the God that he served. And the God that he served told him this would happen. And then as we'll see next week, of course, it did happen. It happened exactly according to plan. The last words of our passage tonight are, are that we, we must run aground on some island, he says. And that is what happens in the conclusion of the chapter. And so Paul was given these unique opportunities to preach the gospel in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of hardship and, and terror and anxiety. And so we can do the same. We can trust that the Lord is with us even in those difficult moments of our life. He watches over us. He guides us even when we can't see the stars and the sun above. Let's pray.